0: Hello, I'm John Dennis. It's Tuesday the 5th of January. Today, Rajendra Pachauri, one of the world's leading authorities on climate change, tells The Guardian that climate change deniers present a serious threat in 2010.
1: Things have been stalled in Copenhagen and the kind of favourable outcome that most people expected in terms of a legally binding agreement. Really didn't materialise.
0: The people of Wootton Bassett, where the bodies of fallen soldiers are brought, tell us what they think of plans by an Islamist group to march through their village.
2: If they want to go and
0: march somewhere, they can go back to Afghanistan and march there. Also today, Google unveils its first phone. Labour and the Tories clash over spending plans as the 2010 general election campaign begins. And if there's a battle to succeed Gordon
3: Brown as Labour leader, What will David and Ed Miliband do? David Miliband, seen as the front runner, but this is where the rub comes in, Um, he is going to struggle probably after the general election. Guardian Daily with John Dennis on
0: guardian.co.uk But to
3: start, one
0: of the world's most eminent experts on global warming says 2010 could see a surge in climate change scepticism, a trend that would cause hardship for the planet's poorest people. Rajendra Pachauri chairs the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. That's the Nobel Prize-winning United Nations body that summarises the findings of climate science for policymakers.
1: Things have been stalled in Copenhagen and the kind of favourable outcome that most people expected in terms of a legally binding agreement really didn't materialise. And secondly... This is also, in my view, a measure of desperation on the part of the sceptics, because there is a very clear and demonstrated commitment on the part of world leaders to come up with an agreement. I mean, that's one reason why so many of them converged on Copenhagen.
0: What do you think is the best way of countering their arguments and stopping their ascendance?
1: Well, I think the, the, the best way to sort of get on with the job is to see that we disseminate the scientific findings of the IPCC and the process by which these have been arrived at, though the process that the IPCC follows is absolutely impeccable. So I think we need to make sure that this gets known to people. And I think it's critically important to inform the public about the truth and the reality of climate change and the scientific basis for it. How hopeful and, uh, are you
0: about the next global climate summit in Mexico this year?
1: Well, it's certainly not going to be easy, and I think a great deal will de- will depend on what happens in the U.S. But my belief is that uh, even in the U.S., there are large numbers of people, certainly a greater number today than was the case two years ago, who are convinced that action has to be taken on climate change. And, you know, we must also highlight the importance of the co-benefits from mitigation of emissions of greenhouse gases. I mean, the whole issue of energy security, the benefits of lower air pollution at the local level, and uh, the employment generation that could come from moving towards activities that essentially cut down on emissions of greenhouse gases, this is clearly a strategy that would help economic revival rather than retard it.
0: Rajendra Pachauri, and you can read his article on climate change sceptics and have your say on it at guardian.co.uk slash environment. Also on The Guardian's website today...
3: Hi, I'm Sarah Crown, the editor of The Guardian's books website, and on the site today we're talking about the category winners of this year's Costa Book Awards, and the categories are poetry, biography, first novel, fiction and children's fiction, and we have the news through all the winners, extracts from each of the winning books, and discussion on the blog um, principally of the fact that Colm Toybin has beaten Hilary Mantel to the gong. We also have a gallery of lovely images from a book from Black Dog Publishing called A Visual History of Cookery, um, which includes adverts for everything from rationing to very scary-looking 1970s TV dinners, and blogs on Orhan Pamuk's new novel, The Museum of Innocence, and the Real Life Museum that he'll be opening to coincide with it. And our own Sam Jordison continues his reading odyssey through the winners of the Hugo Award. All this at guardian.co.uk forward slash book.
0: Labour and the Conservatives accused each other of lying over spending commitments yesterday, with their sights, of course, on this year's general election. The Guardian's political journalist, with the awesome task of blogging events between now and the big day, is Andrew Sparrow. He's in our Westminster office, and with me in the pod is Tom Clark, the paper's leader writer. Andy, a rafter of announcements yesterday. Uh, the election campaign's well and truly underway.
2: It certainly felt like an election yesterday. We had a, a press conference from Labour, a, uh, what felt like a press conference from David Cameron. It was actually a speech, but he uh, took some questions afterwards, as, as he normally does. A dossier from Labour, a chapter of a draft manifesto from the Conservative Party, announcements in both came and counter counterclaim rebuttal and, 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 and counter rebuttal, and at the end of the day, uh, nothing seemed desperately clearer than it than it was. So um, yes, yeah, that's the election for you. Get ready for another four months of this.
0: <laughs> yeah, t- Tom Tom Clark, uh, is it possible to say you know, who's right and who's wrong about these spending cuts and, and the the alleged black hole in the Tory finance plans?
4: Not not easily, no, because uh, because of course. It's all, it's all very detailed. But the, the, the very big picture here is that there is a big deficit, which uh, the politicians, in some moods, when they're talking about the economy, are keen to remind us about. They'd like to say, We're a steady hand on Matilla. We recognise there's a big problem. We'll steer back to prosperity. But when it comes to, as they were yesterday, moving away from the economy and talking about Other issues, be it education and training that Labour's been talking about, or the NHS which Cameron's been talking about, then they're much less keen to talk about how they're going to fix that financial problem. So it looks like we're going to have a very long election campaign, but not necessarily a very coherent or a very enlightening one. Andy, do
0: you think that the uh, the, the pledges on the NHS made by the Tories yesterday were simply a means of neutralising the class war tactics that we 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 heard from Labour at the end of last year, or was it this change of emphasis away from the economy towards public? Public services is there anything more significant to it than that
2: it was partly to do with addressing the concern that the conservatives are only interested in the rich and they've got this dreadful albatross around their neck in the form of the the pledge to increase the threshold for inheritance tax which has enabled labor to go around saying for the last six months that their priority is tax cuts for millionaires so Cameron is very keen to stress uh, those elements in the Conservative Manifesto that would, would benefit the less well-off. And yesterday he, um, he talked about a, a health premium. It's, a, it's an interesting uh, progressive pledge that does, a, in some respect, address that problem they have with uh, being perceived as the party of the rich. Tom, there
0: are pros and cons uh, with um, the level of detail that uh, both parties give on uh, their, their manifesto commitments
4: well there are yes um and um i mean it sounds attractive what cameron's saying now just that does with ed ball this stuff about oh we'll have more one-to-one tuition but i think that because the election campaign looks like being so very long they're going to get much more sustained questioning than normal about whether uh things can really be paid for now um andy's talking there it sounds very sensible about david cameron saying well let's put more um, money into the health service in those areas where bad health has been most stubborn. Well, that sounds fine until you realise that overall, the health budget is probably going to be frozen for the next few years. Both Labour and the Conservatives made a great deal of the fact, no, we're not going to cut health, but it will feel like a cut. After all, spending on the NHS was going up by something like 3% a year under Margaret Thatcher, and it didn't feel like a boom time then. And uh, both of you,
0: do you think that the 6th of May is still the most likely date for an election?
4: Yeah, I think it is, because I think um, things could pan out in two ways. One is that the polls will look worse and uh, then any talk of an early election will bite the dust. Alternatively, they could continue to narrow a little bit, in which case Gordon wouldn't think, oh, we're only five points behind, let's do it now. He'd say the wind is finally running in our favour, let's wait through till May, and then maybe we'll be back at level pegging. I, I can't agree. see the argument for March either way. And I the-
2: agree with all of that. I also think it's worth pointing out that yesterday we had had, had more hints. Ed Balls talked about the, the election being some way off, so yeah, May the 6th is... Uh, Uh, is still very clearly the favourite date.
0: Andy, Tom, thanks. And later in today's podcast, we'll hear from Nicholas Watt about the rise in British politics of two remarkable siblings, David and Ed Miliband.
3: It is an absolutely fascinating family tale because throughout their lives, they have always been close. But first... An Islamist group
0: opposed to the war in Afghanistan plans to parade through the village of Wootton Bassett in Wiltshire. That's the route used to bring home the bodies of troops from Afghanistan. Islam 4 UK says it will try to win people round to the idea. Its spokesman is Anjem Chowdhury. Yeah, the procession is taking place in Wooten Bassett
4: in order to raise awareness about what is actually taking place in Afghanistan. It's not about a couple of bodies coming through Wooten Bassett, you know, which have been sent there by the British government. It's about the tens, uh, you know, even possibly 100,000 people who have been murdered by the foreign policy of the British and the Americans in Afghanistan through indiscriminate air raids, through the agencies, you know, via the CIA and the ISI who have orchestrated bombing campaigns in public places and then blamed the people who are trying to uh, liberate their land and of course you know the uh, torture and the, and the uh, abuse which is taking place for example in Bagram Air Base. These things must be brought home to the British public. I think that if they're made aware about it they'll put pressure on their government to withdraw their forces which are, is our
0: ultimate objective. The Guardian Stephen Morris tried to find out what sort of reception they're likely to get. What do you think of this march?
1: I don't think very much about it at all. If they want to go and march somewhere they can go back to Afghanistan and march there. I spent 44 years in the Air Force, you know, I support what our troops are doing and I don't support what they want to do, particularly here. It's a
0: little bit spiteful to pick a town which is is looking after its own people. One of the reasons, although it may be a relatively minor one, for fighting in Afghanistan is to preserve our national freedoms which include marching and protesting. It's a little ironic that they want to particularly do it here when it might be better directed to Downing Street. Uh, I don't necessarily agree with it, but uh, you know they're entitled to do what they want to do, I suppose. But it seems that uh, it's more political than, uh, than it is that, that, that it should be. Well, the, the town uh, has always tried not to be political. Well, I think so. I think they turn out because they pay their respects. And uh, what do you think the town will do if this march does go ahead?
1: What will they do? Um, I would like to think they would totally boycott it. There's nothing they can do. The police won't enforce anything, so they're quite entitled to do it. But uh, why have they picked here? That's the thing.
3: It's a no-win situation. If people op- oppose it, they get a lot of publicity. If we don't oppose it, they get a lot of publicity. So I'm sorry they're coming.
0: Stephen Morris reporting. Google is expected to unveil its first phone today in California. It's called the Nexus One, and Bobby Johnson, our technology correspondent, is in San Francisco.
5: I've seen a Nexus one, but I haven't actually used it. Um, but but when you see it, um, it looks fairly much like a typical smartphone now. Um, very similar to the iPhone. You know, it's got a touch screen, um, lots of snazzy animations and nice pictures, and it's very easy to use and it's very fast. Um, now that doesn't really distinguish it from the rest of the market, to be honest. There's there's a lot of other handsets out there from Apple, from BlackBerry, from uh, Nokia. And also from from Google, things running Google's own software. Um, What does make the difference here, I think, is that aspect that that Google's taking control, um, that they really want a slice of the mobile phone market. They think it's absolutely imperative to the future of the company. And they're not standing by and watching someone someone else have to do it for them you know they're really taking the ball by the horns
0: how does it fit into their um overall strategy though because i mean you know they're a much trusted brand um you know the 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 search engine of choice for 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 many people um it it just seems like a a, a diverse is this a diversification too far
5: it's interesting to see uh where google's going i mean there's clearly a lot of value in in the mobile market for them um i mean you imagine the kind of things that that you do with your phone and uh, the data that google could know about you if it had control of your phone as well i mean you know where you are who you talk to what you're doing um all of these things are absolutely massively valuable to google the question is you know if if they're starting to get more and more of that information um how do people feel about it and you know a lot of people are feeling ambivalent about the idea that google not only knowing Everything they type into a search engine, every video they watch on YouTube, every advert they click on, um, every email they send. You know, now Google might also know everything you do with your phone. Um, that's, that's kind of scary, but it also shows the massive ambition that Google has. You know, it wants to be the biggest company we've ever seen before. And, um, you know, this is the latest step in that story.
0: Bobby Johnson... Well, as we've heard earlier, the general election campaign will dominate the early part of 2010, but it could well trigger another intriguing contest, one for the leadership of the Labour Party. And two of the possible contenders are brothers. In the red corner, the Foreign Secretary David Miliband. Here he is at last year's party conference. The word that matters most in modern politics is future. The work that matters most is making that future possible. Because either you shape the future or you are condemned to the past. And also in the red corner, the climate change secretary, Ed Miliband. This is from the UN summit in Copenhagen. What will the world think of us if after two years of work, we simply come out with a document for information? So, Mr President, I urge you... Uh, to seek the guidance of this conference and make this a COP decision. Our chief political correspondent, Nicholas Watt, has been assessing how the Miliband's
3: individual political ambitions sit with their love for each other as brothers. Well, it is interesting. They're the first full brothers this century to have sat uh, in the Cabinet. The Chamberlain brothers, Austin Chamberlain and Neville Chamberlain, sat in the Cabinet in 1931, but they were half-brothers. Ed and David Miliband are full brothers. And it is an absolutely fascinating uh, family because throughout their lives they have always been close They were brought up in a very loving household in Primrose Hill. Uh, Their father, uh, the late Marxist intellectual Ralph Miliband, uh, and their mother, Marian uh, Kozak, created uh, an incredibly lively household, lots of interesting guests like Tony Benn and Tariq Ali, uh, but also a very loving household where their opinions as boys and as young men uh, were valued and friends say that they were treated as adults. And what it's done is it's produced two very nice, very thoughtful people who, although they worked uh, on either side of the great political divide in British politics, that was David Miliband worked for Tony Blair as his first head of the policy unit, and Ed Miliband worked as an advisor uh, to Gordon Brown, although they were on either side of the divide, they remained close. But this year, it looks like they're going to have a very, very difficult decision to make, and that is what should they do in the looming Labour leadership conference? Contest that will probably take place after a defeat for Labour at the general election.
0: Because there's an assumption that they won't run against each other.
3: There is an assumption that they won't run against each other and I think it's pretty sensible to think along those tracks. I think where we are at the moment is that David Miliband must be the front-runner. He's four and a half years older than his brother, he's foreign secretary, he's been an MP for twice as long as uh, his younger brother and also in addition to being foreign secretary he's held some pretty tough jobs. Uh, He was obviously uh, effectively the climate change secretary in the old environment department and he was also school standards minister where he did uh, you know pretty serious uh, reforms that involved serious battles. Ed Miliband uh, has had a very successful year, firstly uh, over Heathrow, the third runway there. Yes, he signed up to it, but he did bring some environmental concessions out of the prime minister. And of course, he was all over our television sets uh, during the Copenhagen uh, uh, negotiations. So David Miliband, seen as the front runner, but this is where the rub comes in. Um, He is going to struggle probably after the general election. Uh, He is tainted by having worked for Tony Blair and in a shrunken parliamentary Labour party and with not a vast amount of union support, he may struggle to win support in the early stages of a contest. And so people are beginning to look at Ed Miliband and Ed Miliband is aware of that. But I'm told talking to people who know them that he's finding the whole thing uh, pretty difficult. He knows he's being talked about. Hey, as one person said, he's got an ego and he has uh, leadership ambitions of his own. And at some point, a difficult choice is going to have to be made. And as one person put it to me, look, one must assume that David will run for it. One must assume that Ed Miliband's going to accept that. But if after the general election, David Miliband does struggle to win serious support in the new parliamentary Labour Party, does struggle to win support uh, in the trade unions and the third element of Labour's Electoral College, the constituency Labour parties out in the country. then his younger brother is going to have a pretty difficult decision to make.
0: Nicholas Watt in Westminster. Francesca Panetta and Ian Chambers were the producers of today's edition of Guardian Daily. Many thanks for listening.